Hello, this episode of Luke's English Podcast is sponsored by italki. You can use italki to find native speakers and English teachers for online conversations and English lessons through Skype. It's really convenient. You can do you can have your English classes uh, sitting on your sofa if you want. Um, it's all done through Skype. It's really convenient. Um, check out uh, teacherluke.co.uk slash talk. Uh, and uh, when you buy some lessons with someone, italki will send you a voucher worth 100 credits. So teacherluke.co.uk slash talk or click an italki logo on my website. Now, here's a new episode. Here we go. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Luke's English Podcast. Here's a new episode. In this one, I'm going to continue going through a few more questions and comments that I've received from listeners recently. I started doing this in episode number 403 uh, because I sort of made a list of these questions and comments that I picked out from my inbox and from comments and other places and I made a list and I started going through that list of questions in episode 403 and that episode covered a few things like for example a World War One story from a listener, um, a language question about noun phrases and possessives and also some details about my dad's accent. Um, I didn't finish going through my list because I've still got a couple of questions left so that's what I'm going to deal with in this episode. So. A lot of this episode actually is scripted because I wrote some notes in preparation for this one and I'm reading from those notes in this episode. So um, check out the notes on the page for this episode. Uh, It's kind of like mainly scripted. I expect I'll go off script at certain times and sort of say some other things that aren't written down um, and I'll try to keep the whole thing sounding as natural as possible. If you're transcribing this episode as part of the transcription project, then don't forget to check this the page for this episode uh, and like copy and then paste these notes into your transcripts, and then you can just like add any of the other things that I say that are not written down. Okay? Right, so here's an overview of what I'd like to achieve in this episode. Um, I'm going to start with a grammar question about the difference between past continuous and past simple tenses. So past continuous and past simple. Then um, I'm going to deal with a question about media bias in the UK. Uh, there'll be um, I'm going to sort of say a few things about the uh, the terrible plane crash that happened in Colombia uh, on Monday this week. And uh, there'll be a couple of other bits and pieces too, I expect. So um, some language stuff, some grammar stuff, a bit of um, cultural stuff about the media, and then some topical stuff there about that news story. So let's get straight down to it, shall we? And we're going to begin with this grammar question. And this is a question about the differences between past simple tense and past continuous tense. Now, these two tenses, this area of grammar is the sort of thing that you deal with at at the intermediate level. But this question, I think, is a question from a listener who's a little bit confused by um, two sentences that apparently he's heard that to him seem to mean the same thing. So let me read out the, uh, the question, the comment. This is a comment from someone called Vadim. 
Um, I can't remember when this was left on the website, but I've been kind of thinking about this one for a while. So Vadim wrote uh, this comment. He said, hello, Luke, I have a question. I hear people say these things. So A, I worked all day yesterday. And B, I was working all day yesterday. And then C, I waited for you for three hours yesterday. And D, I was waiting for you for three hours yesterday. And they say it without any further information. So I can't see any real difference between those pairs of sentences. Like, you know, um, I waited for you for three hours yesterday and I was waiting for you for three hours yesterday. So Vadim can't see the difference there. What's the difference between A and B, C and D? Um, I trawled through plenty and plenty of information on that matter, but I'm still confused. I would appreciate your clearing this up. Okay, then, Vadim, um, let's deal with that. So, um, obviously, we can see that it's the, the, the difference there, there is in the tense, the verb form. I waited and I was waiting. Um, so, what do you think, listeners? What do you reckon? Um, how would you answer this question if you were the teacher in this situation? Or if, um, you know, your friend who's learning English asked you this question, how would you answer this one? What is the difference between I, was wait- I waited for you for three hours yesterday and I was waiting for you for three hours yesterday? What's the difference? Are those sentences both correct? Is there, in fact, a difference at all? Or do they basically mean the same thing? Here's my answer, Vadim. Um, now, first of all, without more context, sometimes the same sentence in two different tenses can basically mean the same thing. It is possible that past simple and past continuous in some situations can basically mean the same thing. There is often a bit of crossover between tenses. You know, there are certain times when they kind of mean the same thing. Like, for example, if you have present perfect simple and present perfect continuous, sometimes those sentences mean the same thing. Like, I've lived here for four years and I've been living here for four years, you know? Those kind of mean the same thing, basically. Now, this isn't a question about present perfect, so we'll put that one to one side. Um, I worked all day yesterday and I was working all day yesterday. They could basically mean the same thing um, um, because uh, we don't have any more information. That's probably the simple answer. In fact, there's no difference. They're the same. Uh, The lack of of, of bigger context and the fact that they both specify a duration... Both those sentences specify duration. We've got all day, and they also give the same time period, yesterday. Those time expressions narrow down the meaning of the verbs to such an extent that they basically mean the same thing. And time expressions are important. Um, It's not just the verb forms that dictate the meaning of a sentence, but also all the other bits of vocabulary and the other things around the verbs, like, for example, time expressions, are important for narrowing down the meaning of a sentence. It's also not just the sort of linguistic context, but the situation in which the uh, the sentence has been used. Um, And that sort of uh, adds more detail, as I'm going to say in a moment. So it's not just about the verbs every time. You could even say, for example, you could say, I work all day yesterday. And we would know exactly what that means because of the word yesterday and the words all day. Even though it's incorrect, of course, because we don't use a present tense, work, to refer to yesterday. So, I work all day yesterday. We know what that means, but it's wrong, okay? Um, So, you know, and that's just because of the time expressions sort of narrowing down the meaning. Um, So, I worked all day yesterday. I was working all day yesterday. 
All right, based on the information you've given me, Vadim, I would say that they do basically mean the same thing here. But I expect that uh, that answer of like, oh, they're the same, that might not be completely satisfying uh, because we all know, don't we? We all know that past simple and past continuous are different. So let's see if we can go deeper into the difference between these tenses. Okay, so um, strap yourselves in. Brace yourselves, because grammar is coming. All right, so here comes the longer answer. I'll try to make it easy to understand without getting too abstract. Uh, wish me luck. Okay, right, so what's the difference between past simple and past continuous tenses? Uh, by the way, past continuous is sometimes called the past progressive tense as well. Um, so what's the difference then using these sentences that Vadim has given us as a starting point? I worked all day yesterday. I was working all day yesterday. Uh, I, I'm exhausted already, Vadim. I am because all this work, it's too much work. I worked all day yesterday and I was working all day yesterday. Uh, now I'm exhausted. But anyway, let's keep going because you've got to keep going right when you're learning English. You know, you might be like, oh, this is a drag. Keep going. That's very important. You've got to keep climbing that mountain. Uh, anyway, it's, uh, look at the view. It's beautiful. Right. So, there is a slight difference in nuance, I think, between these two sentences, which would be much easier to establish if there was more context. For example, understanding the pragmatic concerns of the speakers. Like, why did, this, why did the person say these things? Um, the intentions of the speaker um, is massively important because language is used to convey certain specific ideas at a certain moment and sometimes the situation itself can lend meaning to an utterance. So, you know, language doesn't exist in a vacuum. Um, so remember, context is everything. Uh, Vadim says in his comment that the speaker doesn't add any other information beyond the words all day yesterday. That's, that's it. And we see there are no other accompanying clauses, a second verb, or other supporting sentences, or even like a response from someone else. We don't know how the sentences or the situation continues at all. But Vadim, I doubt very much that these were the only utterances or messages that were communicated in this situation, right? I mean, this person or these people didn't just walk up to you out of nowhere and just you know, they didn't just appear from nowhere, say the sentences and then just disappear in a cloud of smoke. You know, you know, they didn't just come out of nowhere, right? You weren't just sort of sitting there working, just typing or something. And then suddenly I was working all day yesterday. Oh, who said that? You weren't just sort of visited by a, a voice from nowhere. It's just I worked all day yesterday. What? You know, I don't think that's what happened. So what, what's the situation, Vadim? Uh, are these responses to questions? You know, oh, I was working all day yesterday. Is that a response to a question or something? Why is the speaker saying these things? And without this context, the sentences on their own become quite abstract. And language doesn't exist in a vacuum. All utterances are given meaning by the context in which they're used, right? Um, it's a bit like, here's a musical analogy, which uh, is probably unnecessary, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's a bit like the way chords or notes in music only create emotions. They only have emotional resonance when they are combined with other ones. Like one single note on its own, doom, that doesn't really mean anything, but when you combine that with other notes, then it sort of has an emotional 
thrust to it. It has an emotional meaning. It's the same with language. Phrases are given meaning by the implicit meaning of the words, but also the situation. All right, I think I've made that point. So context is important. So without getting too pretentious or anything, let me try and answer it. Uh, Let me get straight to the point. So on their own then, past simple, we use it to describe single finished events in finished time periods. For example, I worked yesterday. All right. Or I worked all day yesterday. So we consider that verb, that action, as like a finished unit, okay? I worked yesterday. It's one finished unit of action, okay? Um, it, it might have taken a long time, so the duration of it is sort of not really what we're focusing on. We're focusing on it as one single unit of action. It, even though it may have taken a long time, for example, all day, we're now looking back on it Um, now as a finished thing, finished unit. So I worked yesterday. If you say I worked yesterday there, we have no idea how long you worked, but adding all day shows that it happened from the beginning to the end. So I worked all day yesterday. Right. Now then, past continuous, uh, that's I was working. This verb tense emphasizes that the action was in progress at a specific moment in the past. That's what you've probably read in your grammar book that we use past continuous to express the idea that an action was in progress at a specific moment in the past. Now, this could be a time. It could be a moment in time, for example, specifically an hour on the clock uh, with a prepositional phrase like at 8 a.m. Or or it could be, this moment could be expressed with a clause like, you know, when I heard the news, for example. So the point is that the action was in progress at that specific moment. For example, I was working at 8 a.m. or I was working when I heard the news. Um, okay, uh, now in this, in the case of I was working all day yesterday, then I guess the point is you've got to think, well, just pick a moment, pick any moment in the day. And if you look at that moment, I was working at that moment. That's, that's what it means to me. I was working all day yesterday. Just pick any moment throughout the day and you will have seen that I was working. For example, at 10 a.m., I was working. Just before lunch, I was working then too. At 1 p.m., yep, I was working. When you called me in the afternoon, yes, I was working then too. So pick a moment, I was working then. Um, compare that with the past simple, which is I worked all day yesterday. And this feels like the speaker is expressing the action as one single unit of activity. So maybe, you know, in the context of a conversation, it could be, you know, uh, what did you do last night? Well, last night I just came home and I went straight to bed because I worked all day yesterday and I was really tired. Okay. Yes. You might also say I had worked all day, but you don't have to. I worked all day yesterday, so I was really tired, so I didn't want to go out. Okay, so it feels like uh, one single unit of activity as a finished thing. Right, okay. I understood that I just sort of repeated myself a bit, but sometimes it's necessary just to make it absolutely clear. Because it's difficult to, to describe these things. It sounds very abstract, you know, when we start using all these rules. You know, it's focusing on an action that was in progress at a particular moment in the, you know... It's really abstract. So what we need, what we really need is some examples, okay, in order to compare and think about genuine, like, pragmatic, um, what's the word for it, pragmatic intentions, like what the speaker really means. We need examples. And those examples are coming in a moment. Um, But yes, this stuff does get pretty abstract and quite slippery, which is quite normal. 
Um, I think it's quite normal when you're studying grammar, especially when you just study on, focus on the grammar on its own without thinking about the the the, the reasons why people are, are, are saying the things they're saying. If you just look at grammar on its own, it starts to get abstract. So you've got to you know always think about why is the person saying this this thing. Uh, what's the context in which it's being used? Um, to an extent, we are groping around in the dark here, looking for concrete meaning. And I imagine that for learners of English, it is a bit like that, especially when, for example, uh, English grammar doesn't perfectly translate into, into your first language. You're probably looking for an equivalent in your first language. In some cases, there is no equivalent. Like, for example, for uh, French people, uh, studying the present perfect tense can be difficult because there is no equivalent in French. So it's like trying to think uh, in a new paradigm, thinking in a completely new way about time in some cases. I think that probably past continuous and past simple, most languages will have rough equivalents of the two. Um, so what about those examples uh, to illustrate the way that these verb tenses are used? This should make it much easier. And I know, by the way, that a lot of you listening to this, you've studied past continuous and past simple before, all right? But let me just take you back to that question of, I worked all day yesterday and I was working all day yesterday and put yourself in the shoes of the teacher and how would you explain that in a really clear way to satisfy Vadim with his question? Because it's when you put yourself in the point of view of the teacher having to explain it, that's where you get down to the real nitty-gritty of the major differences in these verb tenses. Okay, so try and explain it to someone and then you'll learn, actually, it's a bit more complicated than you first thought. And they say also that trying to teach something is often the best way of learning about it yourself. So there's, a, there's an idea when you're studying grammar, if you're looking for a way of trying to, you know, approach the grammar study, you could imagine that you're going to teach that grammar to someone else. So that forces you to understand it a lot more profoundly than if you were just, you know, trying to sort of understand it um, just purely for your own learning, you know? All right, so here's an example. Why didn't you phone me? Why didn't you phone me? Imagine, let's say, it's, um, you know, a, a, a boyfriend or girlfriend. Let's say it's a girlfriend uh, arguing with her boyfriend because um, uh, she called him and he didn't call her back. He didn't answer her phone calls. So she's going, why didn't you phone me? It would have only taken a second just to let me know that you were all right. Why didn't you phone me? And he says, oh, I'm sorry, I was working all day yesterday. I didn't get a single opportunity to use my phone. Now, that would seem to be a more satisfying answer than I worked all day yesterday. Like, why didn't you phone me? I sent you text messages. I called you three times. Why didn't you pick up your phone? Yeah, I, I worked all day yesterday. All right, kind of works, but... I was working all day yesterday seems better to me because that sort of focuses on what you were involved in at those specific moments that the, the girl called, okay? It emphasizes it on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. And then here's another example. Oh, I feel really tired today. Oh, and your friend goes, oh, why is that? And you say, I worked all day yesterday without a break. And then I had to drive my brother to the airport and it took ages. Okay, now here we, this example emphasizes the complete nature of the action and therefore the result of it, rather than focusing on the moment-by-moment -moment nature of it. I worked all day yesterday and that's why I'm tired. 
or I worked all day yesterday, that's why I was tired yesterday evening. Um, Emphasising the the complete nature of it, not the moment-by-moment I was working uh, nature of it. Okay? Also, past continuous isn't usually used on its own. It's usually combined with a time expression or another verb to express a moment. For example, he said they tried to deliver the package at 12. Um, I just got a call from Amazon and they said that they couldn't deliver the package and they tried to deliver it at 12. And then you say, oh yeah, sorry. I was talking to Jeff um, uh, from the biscuit company uh, on Skype at 12. I must have missed them. And then it's like, yeah, well, they said they tried to deliver the package every hour and no one answered the door all day. Uh, And it was like, yeah, I was working in my studio all afternoon. I must have missed them. When they arrived, I must have been working. Or when they arrived, I was working. Okay? So there it's accompanied by another clause, usually past simple. I was working when Jeff called. Or I was working at 12. I was working when they arrived. Okay, then. There are, there are other rules about continuous tenses as well, like the fact that we don't use them with state verbs. For example, you don't say, I was knowing that you had the answer, because no, to know something, that's a state verb. So remember that as well, that sometimes it, this, this sort of thing is dictated by whether the verb is a state verb or an action verb. What's the difference between a state verb and an action verb? Well, I mean, you know, either, it's a, either verbs are state verbs or action verbs. If it's an action verb, basically... You can probably mime it. If you're playing that game where you have to uh, mime something using body language, you know that game of, it's like a party game. Now, if you can mime the verb with a physical action of some kind, then it's probably an action verb. If you can't really mime it, like, for example, how do you mime to know something? Like, I know her name, to know something. How do you mime that? You're probably pointing at your head right? You're probably tapping your head or something like that. But it's certainly not easy to do a a mime for uh, a state verb, okay? Um, So generally, that's a kind of rule of thumb for working out if it's a state verb or an action verb. If you can do a physical mime for it, then it's probably an action verb. Uh, And we, we don't put state verbs in continuous forms usually. For example, possessive have, you know, like I'm having, uh, what, like a... I, I have an iPhone 5. You wouldn't say, I'm having an iPhone 5. Uh, unless have means something else, because, you know, have sometimes uh, can mean other things. Like, it can mean eat. Like, what are, you, what, what are you eating for breakfast? I'm having an iPhone 5. You can't have an iPhone for breakfast. Um, all right. So, what I want to do, actually, is we're not done with this yet. Um, we're, I'm going to do a bit more on this. And... Uh, We're going to go through a few other examples, and I want you to think which one is right, which one sounds more natural to you. Um, I'm going to go through some pairs of sentences and just think, does one sound strange and the other one sound normal? What do you think? Um, And think about those criteria. Is the verb expressing an event or action as a single unit, or is it expressing it as a repeated action, a long action, or an action in progress at a point, or at a series of points in time? Bloody hell, this sounds abstract. Sometimes I think that uh, the, the, the way to describe language is actually far more complex than the actual target language itself. But anyway, so here's one. I finished the book yesterday, and I was finishing the book yesterday. All right. Now, for me, the first one, I finished the book yesterday. That one seems normal. It sounds like a a single finished action. Like, for example, 
Ah, oh, you know, I'll... Um, Oh, I finished that book yesterday. Oh, it's brilliant. What an amazing ending. And I was finishing that book yesterday when I got interrupted. Okay. Uh, Here's another one. Sorry I'm late for the meeting. I got lost on the way here. I took a wrong turn and I got stuck on the ring road. That one seems normal to me. Sorry I'm late for the meeting. I got lost on the way here. And this one. Sorry I'm late for the meeting. I was getting lost on the way here. That sounds strange to me, because either you're lost or you're not lost, right? You know, I mean, how long does it take to get lost? You know, you know. sorry I'm late, I was getting lost. No, I got lost. Um, sorry I'm late for the meeting, I was getting lost on the way here. I was taking a wrong turn. I was taking a wrong turn. You mean you took the wrong turn again and again and again and again? Don't do that. So, sorry I'm late, I got lost on the way here, I took a wrong turn, I got stuck on the ring road. Uh, Ronaldo scored a goal in the last five minutes. That sounds normal. And Ronaldo was scoring a goal in the last five minutes. Which sounds weird. It's like, what, there was a, like some sort of weird glitch in the Matrix? Where he just was scoring a goal just again and again and again and again in the last five minutes? Like some kind of weird glitch? Uh, Ronaldo scored one goal in the last five minutes. Ronaldo was scoring one goal in the last five minutes is really weird. Um, here's another one. Sorry I'm late. I found a parking space. And sorry I'm late. I was finding a parking space. So for me, the first one there sounds strange. Sorry I'm late. I found a parking space. That's strange because surely if you found a parking space, that would mean that, you, that you're not late. Um, so we need more information like, um, you know, I found a parking space, but it took ages or it took ages to find a parking space. Sorry, I'm late. Okay, that would be better. Um, sorry, I'm late. I was finding a parking space. That's that makes sense. It seems like you tried again and again and again to find one or it was a long repeated action with you driving round and round and round in the park uh, in the car park, finding a parking space. I think we get the point, don't we? Um, I think we do. I've got other examples and other things to say, but I think that's it, really. There's some other stuff here. There's like a um, uh, some other examples, but I think we've done that one, right? Vadim, okay, happy, satisfied. Hello, Vadim. 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 Okay, no response from Vadim here. Oh yeah, that's right, because I'm sitting in a room on my own with a microphone. Uh, yeah, weird, isn't it? It's sometimes weird. Okay, done. Grammar done, out the way. Now, here's another question. And this one uh, is about media bias in the UK. And this is a question from a listener called Juliana from Brazil. And uh, Juliana, I don't know if that's how you pronounce your name. As usual, I can never pronounce the names of my listeners because I need to actually have the person there to correct me. But anyway, I'm going to call you Juliana. Uh, from Brazil. And um, this is Juliana's question. And she goes, uh, and it goes like this. So, hey, Luke, how are you? I'm fine, Juliana. Thank you. How are you? Good, you're fine. Um, She said, I'm a long-term Lepster. Your job is amazing. Firstly, let me explain what I'm asking you about. I'm Brazilian. And my particular opinion about the media here in Brazil is it's not impartial, especially about policy. Um, I'm following the news about Brexit and I usually read the BBC and the Telegraph. I'd like to ask you a question. Do you think that the BBC or the Telegraph are impartial about policy? Thanks for your attention. You're great. Oh, thanks. And she said, I'm sorry about my English. I'm learning. 
Don't be modest. Your English is good, Juliana. Right then, so... Uh, impartial. We know what this one means, right, everyone? It means kind of neutral, not biased. So biased, that's B-I-A-S-E-D. Biased means that, uh, for example, if um, in a football match, if the referee is biased, it means that he prefers one team over the other. So he's going to make decisions that support one team. So, you, you know, you'd, you'd complain and say, the referee's biased, for example. That's not actually the phrase that they use in the football stadium. Football fans don't generally use that word. The referee is biased. They don't normally do that. They usually would say something far, far ruder than that. Uh, but anyway, biased is the word that we use to mean not neutral or not impartial. So, um, uh, Juliana asks about the BBC and the Telegraph specifically. Um, and are they biased or are they uh, impartial or neutral? Um, okay, so um, let's see. Where? How do we start? Well... Um, I guess, Juliana, you're reading the BBC and the Telegraph online. Um, and of course, nowadays, like news outlets, news TV stations, radio stations like the BBC, you know, the BBC is known for broadcasting, TV and radio. The Telegraph uh, used to be a print newspaper. So we're kind of dealing with slightly different media outlets. So you've got the BBC, which used to be just for TV and radio broadcasting, and The Telegraph, which used to be in print media, now they're online. But you could, I think you can still say that this, this you can still say that they're, they're the same things apply to the online world that used to apply to the offline world, you know? So, um, certainly, the, in, in terms of the print media, the newspapers in the UK, um, you could definitely say that they're not impartial they're not neutral uh mostly uh most of the newspapers have an editorial position which means that they've got a kind of ideological position um which influences the way that they report the news and it influences the sorts of opinions that you can read in their newspapers so most of the newspapers will have a particular kind of bias okay and then the bbc on the other hand Officially, the BBC is neutral, and um, this means that they don't normally express one particular opinion or position on things like government policy or other issues, whereas the newspapers will probably take a certain line on uh, government policy or on other issues, and that line will reflect the general editorial position of those papers. So we'll, we'll come to the papers in a minute. Uh, let me just talk about the BBC first. So Officially, the BBC is neutral. Uh, the, the government has no say over what they broadcast. So the BBC is not a government um, media channel. Even though it's called the British Broadcasting Corporation and it sounds and feels like a government institution, it's not, okay? And it was set up originally as an independent organisation with no government ties. Now, the, the content on the BBC, and this... I guess includes the BBC's website, is monitored by independent regulators. The BBC is funded mainly by the licence fee, which um, I talked about in a recent episode with, uh, 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 with Molly Martinez that you might have heard. The BBC is funded by the licence fee, which basically means that if you want to watch TV in the UK, you've got to pay a licence fee every year. And the money from that licence fee goes into like a fund and... Um, 
this thing called the BBC Trust. And that money then is used uh, by the BBC to make its programmes and things like that. Okay, uh, So it's funded by the people, it's funded by the audiences. And because of that, uh, they have a duty to try to represent everyone who pays the licence fee. So they've got a duty to represent the diversity of licence fee payers in their programmes. So it's kind of their duty to try to you know, be balanced and neutral. Uh, so BBC News... Um, if we're talking about international news, for example, that you see on the BBC, the BBC News, they have a network of reporters that are stationed around the world. And I think it's fair to say that the BBC tries to tries to get the stories from the source as much as possible. They try and get the information from direct sources that are, you know, living in those countries. So you get BBC correspondents in different parts of the world who will report back the news. So that's also uh, tends to be a sign that um, the the information that they broadcast is you know reliable to an extent because they are coming from sources now at this point there's I don't know there's probably people out there thinking uh, uh, about the reliability of BBC information um, and um, of course you know it's it's really difficult to get purely uh, objective completely reliable information from from the media and it doesn't matter what media outlet it is, because it's the media, you're getting your information mediated. You know, that's the meaning of the media. The, the information comes through other people. And because of that, you're always going to get their interpretation of it. But I think that the BBC has this long-standing tradition of independent coverage. Uh, it's a tradition, and it's sort of a duty. It's been one of the founding principles of the BBC to try to be neutral, even though that's kind of impossible. They do, I think, try. So um, I think it's almost completely impossible to be totally neutral about everything. And the individual decision makers at the BBC, like the, the people in charge of making certain decisions about which stories are going to be broadcast and the order in which those stories will be broadcast, those individual decision makers probably have to make choices about what they think is more or less newsworthy. So there will be some value judgment in there to a certain extent when the editors of the news, for example, decide to prioritise certain stories over others, you know. Uh, but, you know, you, sh you, you, you can be sure that there are long, complex meetings, uh, long and complex reports uh, and papers uh, shared in the BBC and long discussions between people in which they try to make these uh, journalistic decisions about, you know, which story are we going to lead with and and why, you know? It's a complicated process. It's not, for example, all decided by one person with a specific agenda. And it's not, you know, based on directives or um advice or whatever uh, steering from the government okay it's not directed by the government like some tv stations out there in the world um, now the bbc is sometimes attacked by critics who argue that it is biased but these critics you tend to find come from various positions so the bbc is criticized by people from across the political spectrum it's criticized by the left it's criticized by the right it's criticized by everyone um, some people feel that the BBC favours left-wing views. Other people believe that the BBC favours right-wing views. Some people think that it's kind of um, a uh, uh, 
some people think that the BBC is somehow um, it's supporting the status quo and it's trying to maintain the status quo. And other people argue that the BBC is sort of undermining the status quo and that it's, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not kind of counteractive, but subversive. That's it. So some people see the BBC as like this uh, subversive thing, which, um, you know, is, is controlled by liberal uh, left-wingers. Other people see the BBC as like this kind of institution this conservative institution that basically maintains the, the the status quo, the current order, you know? So if a lot of people on the left will look at the BBC and think it's a conservative organisation, people on the right will look at the BBC and think it's some sort of left-wing organisation. So, you know, it gets criticised on both uh, from both sides. Um, some people think the BBC is too radical, other people think it's too conservative. The fact is that the BBC have a duty to present balanced opinions. So you often hear both sides of the debate, or more than just both sides. You know, you, you hear many different opinions on a debate. And that's a difficult thing to achieve. If you're trying to cover a story and sort of um, include the different angles on that story, that's difficult. It's difficult to do that in a limited period of time. Um, so, yeah, the BBC try to get different voices and different opinions. I guess they don't get it right all the time. They probably don't manage to give absolutely balanced coverage on everything. Like, for example, the BBC was criticised for its coverage of Brexit. This is a complicated thing when the BBC reported on Brexit because, like, what's... If you imagine, uh, the BBC has a duty to the public to educate, to inform and to entertain and to give balanced views. So... One of the criticisms of the BBC's coverage of Brexit was that the BBC was presenting the arguments for Remain and the arguments for Leave as if they were equivalent in value, okay? When since then it's been proved that some of the arguments for Leave don't have any, didn't have any substance to them at all. Like they were based, in fact, on, on untruths. You know, like these statements about whether the money would, uh, the money saved from... Uh, like statements about how much money was being spent on uh, the EU budget by the UK every year. And these these numbers were sort of, you know, twisted and manipulated. And yet the BBC, I think, presented these arguments. You know, they, they gave um, the Brexiteers the, uh, the time and the space to present those arguments uh, because of balance, because the BBC were trying to, to show a balanced debate. So they let the Remainers give their points of view and you had all these experts and things like that giving their giving their arguments. And then the BBC felt duty-bound to then let the Brexiteers kind of give their arguments. And so one of the criticisms was that BBC didn't sort of fact-check or challenge the arguments of the Leave campaign enough. And it made it look like the Leave campaign's arguments were of equal value and equal uh, equal level of truth as the Remain arguments were. Now, this all is still up in the air, of course. And if I've got any Brexiteers listening to this, wherever you are, you know, even you know outside the UK, you're probably thinking, oh, well, that's not true either. It's all open for debate. Um, so that's that's what the sort of uh, let's say the Remainers are criticising the BBC for that they they presented the Leaves arguments as if they were of equal value. Um, and the BBC were just saying, we're just trying to be balanced. Um, the Re the Leave campaign were making kind of the same argument about uh, 
uh, about the BBC saying that, for example, uh, the BBC was um, too uh, uh, biased towards the Remain camp, you know? So that's, you know, that's the argument from the from the leavers. Anyway, let's not get caught up in Brexit. But the point is that uh, if you want to prove that the BBC is biased, then you can probably find plenty of evidence of that bias in the BBC by just picking the bits that seem to support your case and ignoring the other bits. Like, here's another example. Uh, there was a BBC debate um, about radical Islam, and the BBC chose to invite a few different people to represent different sides of the debate. This debate happened... Um, I think well, it just recently after one of the one of the events uh, relating to it. Um, so the BBC were covering the story of of like I think it was a terrorist attack or the aftermath of a terrorist attack, and so there was a conversation about the about radical Islam, and the BBC chose to invite a few different people to represent different sides of this debate or different aspects of the debate, and you know this included a right wing journalist who is a harsh opponent of what was described as radical Islam, uh, a moderate and liberal non-Muslim guest, a moderate Muslim guest, and then a radical Muslim cleric, a sort of controversial uh, radical Muslim cleric. Okay, So quite a broad spectrum. Now, anti-Islamic right-wing groups argued that the BBC was sympathising with radical Islam by inviting the radical cleric onto the show in the first place. And equally, more liberal viewers got upset that the right-wing journalist was allowed to express his anti-Islamic uh, views on the television. So, is the BBC a moderate liberal TV channel which somehow sympathises with extremists and apologises uh, for them? Or is it pushing a right-wing agenda? Now, if you're so inclined, you can bash the BBC from pretty much any angle. So, on balance, Juliana, and I realise I'm giving you another very long answer. If you were a student in my classroom, Juliana, by the way, I wouldn't just be talking at you like this. Obviously, it's a podcast. Um, and uh, that's what I'm, that's why I talk uh, for extended periods of time about in response to these questions. But that's what you want, isn't it? Yes, of course it is. Okay, good, good. Just checking. Um, so on balance, I think the BBC is known for trying to be impartial, even if this is almost impossible to achieve. Uh, and the BBC is essentially a public service, and it has a duty to be neutral. Okay, now. There are other TV channels as well, like you might see videos on YouTube from Channel 4 News, and there are other there are other uh, news channels in the UK. Um, and, I mean, many other news channels, TV channels, have a, a, a slightly worse reputation than the BBC. Like there's ITV, that's uh, independent television. ITV's criticised for focusing more on commercialised output at the expense of quality standards. Um, Channel 4 News seems to be pretty good, as far as I can see. Sky News, in my opinion, is not that reliable because they're owned by Rupert Murdoch, who has displayed seriously questionable standards of practice as the owner of many media outlets, including Fox News in the USA uh, and uh, tabloid newspapers in the UK, like, for example, the News of the World, which actually closed a few years ago uh, after a terrible scandal, the phone hacking scandal. So Rupert Murdoch owns uh, Sky TV and I just wonder about their news output. And uh, I just, I if I had a choice between Sky TV and the BBC, I'd go for the BBC every time. 
Uh, Rupert Murdoch, uh, this media mogul, uh, is criticised for various things like putting personal gain, profit and corporate or political connections ahead of uh, balanced um, journalism. Um, so of all the TV news outlets that we have in the UK, the BBC seems to be pretty good. But then again, of course, there are going to be critics, and I'm sure that people are going to disagree with me on that. Um, um, and of course, I have no idea how much we can really believe what we see in the TV news in general. And I wonder if it's just somehow intrinsically limited television. Maybe it's just intrinsically limited as an information medium. Is it possible to get a genuinely realistic and rounded view of what's going on by watching coverage from news media? It's extremely difficult to get the full picture, so your view is always going to be mediated to an extent. And that's why it's called the media. Uh, But on balance, I think the BBC takes greater steps to be impartial than many of the uh, than many other TV uh, news outlets that, that there are. Um, and also, it takes greater steps to be impartial than many of the newspapers, which uh, proudly present their, their political bias to the public uh, every day uh, in their pages. So I've talked about the BBC. What about the newspapers? Now, this is a whole podcast episode, and I'm going to try and sort of uh, sum it up in just a few minutes here. So most of the newspapers have an editorial position. In fact, I think all of them do, really. You could say The Independent, you know, The Independent, I think, was launched on the basis that it didn't have a political allegiance. Uh, And The the Independent is kind of moderate to left, really. Um, The Guardian is probably the the newspaper that we most associate with with the left wing in the UK. I mean, they're not like radically left wing, they're kind of moderate left. And it's really read by sort of the educated uh, liberal types from the UK. Um, yeah, I think probably if, if you looked at the readership of The Guardian, you'd probably see that most of them have got a university education. Many of them, um, you know, are from middle class backgrounds and things like that. Um, yeah, it's a sort of highbrow, left leaning, um, but moderate uh, newspaper, The Guardian. Um, then, um, so, okay, to break it down, in the UK, we have two types of newspaper, essentially. We've got broadsheet newspapers and tabloid newspapers. Broadsheets are the sort of bigger ones. They used to be bigger. These days, they've changed the size of broadsheets to make them smaller and they're much easier to read. But broadsheets used to be those big newspapers. They were huge, uh, massive things that, you, you know, really difficult to deal with if you're on public transport it's impossible to read a broadsheet if you're if you are a white van man and you drive a a white van for your job it's difficult to sit behind the wheel of your van during a break and read from a broadsheet uh so broadsheets you know you sort of made you think of people with a bit more space and you know some a businessman at a desk for example or something like that anyway broadsheet newspapers big ones and you tend to find in broadsheets that the photos are smaller, the headlines are a bit smaller, there's more text on the page. So more text um, and slightly smaller photos and things like that. Um, so broadsheets, they tend to be more serious. They tend to cover stories in more depth, um, the serious newspapers. And the broadsheet, the main broadsheets are The Guardian, The Independent that I've just mentioned, 
The Times, um, and The Telegraph. That's probably it, really. Um, and so, Juliana, you asked me about The Telegraph. Well, The Telegraph is kind of um, middle right. It's kind of a conservative newspaper, really. So, for example, The Telegraph's position on Brexit was that they thought that the UK should leave. Uh, so The Telegraph was uh, a Brexit newspaper. So they're a little bit right-wing. Um, yeah, I think that's fair to say. The Times is um, conservative um, and probably slightly right-wing. They probably uh, Times readers probably would vote conservative, so that's slightly right-wing. Um, I'm not sure where they stood on Brexit. Actually, the Times. I think that they, I think they probably thought that the UK should stay. I think they would probably remain. Um, you know, following David Cameron's position, I think they probably vote, uh, supported the Remain camp. I know that the Financial Times, which is uh, a broadsheet newspaper focusing on financial stories, they um, they were f- for Remain. And, you know, because they were all economists and experts about the, the economy. And so, you know, they understood the dangers uh, to the economy of, of, uh, of Brexit. So the Financial Times... Uh, supported the the uh, remain camp but financial times is probably a little bit conservative as well um okay so that's the times the telegraph uh, the guardian the independence the broadsheets um then um then you've got the tabloid newspapers and the tabloids the tabloids appeal to uh, a um a more popular audience a popular readership that means just sort of they've got a more broad appeal what does that mean, Luke? They've got a broad appeal. That means that uh, they tr- they appeal to the populace in general. They're popular newspapers, meaning sort of just people in general. Not uh, uh, it's, it's hard to s- describe this without kind of using slightly snobbish language. But let's say, in order to explain it to you, um, that you often find that uh, working class people will read tabloid newspapers. Not always. It's not just for working class people, but you tend to find that sort of ordinary working class people, you know, like the man who drives the white van, uh, just ordinary, ordinary blokes and women read the tabloids. I think probably the sun and the mirror are read mostly by, a, let's say, a working class uh, readership. Um, so the main tabloids, you've got the Daily Mail uh, and the Daily Express and then the sun and the mirror. And they used to be the news of the world. And there's also the Daily Star and things like the Daily Sport and, and stuff like that. So um, let's talk about the Daily Mail and the Daily Express. Now, the Daily Mail and the Express are basically tabloids in that I think that they um, they f- sort of report news with a, an emotional kick. They use big attention-grabbing headlines. They use big photos um, the stories a bit are a bit shorter, so they kind of have those characteristics of, of tabloid uh, newspapers. But they they present themselves also as being a bit more grown up and serious than than the other tabloids. Um, so they're kind of like tabloid newspapers that like to think they're bra- broadsheet newspapers, but they're not really. Uh, the Daily Mail is a right wing newspaper, and the Daily Express is perhaps even more right wing than the Daily Mail. So the Daily Mail, oh, I could do a whole episode about the Daily Mail. You'll, you, the Daily Mail is also one of the most popular newspaper websites on the internet. But all you need to do is have a look at a page of the Daily Mail, 
Um, I don't know what uh, Daily Mail, uh, November 2016. Uh, let's have a look at some of their big stories of the moment. So, okay, Th- this is this is the the Daily Mail's website for Friday the second of December. The second story they have here. Uh, is this Christmas tree burns in 20 seconds before engulfing an entire living room in just one minute when experts stage fire ahead of holiday season. Okay, so this is a story about how experts have staged a Christmas tree fire as a safety precaution ahead of the holiday season. And it's this is this is their second story of the day. And it's basically like a burning Christmas tree. You know, it's kind of um, shock and danger and Christmas and experts. Ah, ah, we're, we're sort of angry and, and uh, shocked and outraged, but we don't really know why. That's the general flavour of, of the Daily Mail. Uh, and also there's uh, there's always some sort of sexual content in there too. So if you ever look at the Daily Mail's website, on the right-hand side, there are all these pictures of celebrities showing different body parts. And it's stuff like, you know, braless Danielle Lloyd shows off her very ample assets at charity lunch after previously having her implants removed when they exploded. It's that sort of stuff, right? So... Um, I'm not a fan of the Daily Mail, as you can probably tell, but the Daily Mail is one of the most popular newspapers in the UK, right? So that's the Daily Mail. The Daily Express is the same kind of thing, basically, same sort of thing. Uh, And then you've got the Sun, which is also the same kind of thing, but with a bit more of a sense of humour. But the Sun is, um, yeah, it's the Sun is uh, perhaps the most popular newspaper. Uh, Let's have a look at the Sun uh, today. The Sun newspaper, um, and uh, we'll just have a look at what they're leading with. R- Road to Broken Britain. Extraordinary photos of the same town between 2005 and 2016 starkly revealed discontent that led to Brexit. So it's kind of this is a newspaper that appeals to the sort of the common man and the common woman, right? And the criticism of, of the Sun is that they exploit. Uh, ordinary working people's situations, their emotions and their prejudices in order to sell newspapers. That they're not there to help these people. They're there to just sort of appeal to the emotions of these people in order to make them buy their newspapers. Um, And that's it, really. So in terms of the stuff that you're reading, uh, Juliana, I think you're doing all right, really. You, you know, you're getting your information from the BBC and from the Telegraph. That's probably quite a, a well-balanced um, uh, way of doing it because, you know, the Telegraph's a broadsheet newspaper. They they are, I think, in favour of Brexit, or I'm not sure really at this stage what they think. Let's have a look at the Telegraph today, see if we can find any Brexit-related stories because they might have changed their mind. You know, a lot of people have. Um um let's see let's see let's see so here's a story it says there's been a a a local election recently in the uk um and um uh the liberal democrat candidate won and this is being seen as a a victory for the remain campaign or the remain camp um uh because uh the liberal democrats think that we should be in the european union 
And so the result of this election basically is like a, a, a it sort of suggests it's a victory for Remain, okay? Because the guy who lost that seat was a was a a, a Brexiteer. And the Telegraph are covering this story. We're going to get some video now. No, we're not. Okay, the Telegraph are covering this story with this headline: Richmond Park by-election. Top EU official claims shock result is a win for Remain as Ian Duncan Smith tells him to mind his own bloody business. Okay, so basically this Telegraph is sort of reporting it in a fairly, apparently a fairly uh, neutral way. But is it? So the story is saying that the European official has claimed that this by-election result is a win for Remain. But Ian Duncan Smith, who's a Conservative uh, Leave campaigner, has told him to mind his own bloody business. So it feels like to me that this story is being presented as um, as this. You know, um, the European Union said that this result is is a, a win for Remain, but actually it's not. You know, that's kind of how the story is being presented. So I think that the Telegraph uh, are still backing Leave uh, at this point. Uh, but they tend to do it in a just a slightly more grown-up way than than the uh, the tabloids like the Sun uh, and uh, the Daily Mail. So the Sun and the Daily Mail, going back to those tabloids again, the Sun, the Daily Mail, the Daily Express, they're all basically right-wing popular newspapers. There's the Daily Mirror as well, which is kind of like the Sun. It's just that they tend to support the left in politics, right? Okay, now there's a lot more to say about the Sun and about uh, the Daily Mail and the and the influence of the uh, the tabloids. Um, I'm not going to do it now. I'll have to come back to that subject. It was the sort of thing that I should talk to my dad about. So I know my brother also has got lots of things to say about that subject because we talk about it sometimes. The tabloid newspapers, or certainly the print media in the UK, are responsible for a hell of a lot. They've got a massive level of influence. And... Um, you know, to an extent, it's sort of, it's certainly these tabloid newspapers are not something I'm proud of about the UK. I think it's one of the worst things about the country, in a sense. And it's a really complicated situation because lots of people love these papers. And yet I look at them and I kind of think that they're quite despicable, really. Um, I mean, and not just in the way that they cover political stories, but the way that they deal with celebrities, the way that they invade privacy, the privacy of celebrities and things like that. It's very complicated, but um, um, I, I'm not a fan of those uh, papers. So there you go, Juliana. I've just talked to you about uh, the BBC and about uh, the Telegraph and given you an overview of media bias in the UK. Um, I hope that answered your question. Um, right then, now we're, near, we're, we're coming towards the end here. I've just got one or two other things to say. Uh, we were just talking about the news there, and uh, that brings me on to the third uh, comment here. And this is a comment about uh, Brazil's uh, Chapecoense. Is that how I say it? Let me just check how I say the name of, of the football team. Hold on. Okay, this is, this is the name of a football team in Brazil. And um, the... This football team has been in the news. It's tragic. Um, here's how you say the name. Chapaquense. Chapaquense. Okay. Chapaquense. All right, then. So, this is a story about Brazil's Chapaquense football team plane crash in Colombia, which is a really sad story. 
And this is a comment from Roberto Geronimo. And he wrote this on my website today. And Roberto says this. Hi, Luke. How are things? I do like your work and I believe your website is great, uh, not only to learn English, but also to be involved in interesting topics. Um, Thinking about that, I'd like to suggest a topic. As a very cosmopolitan person, I guess you're aware about the flight tragedy involving Chapecoense, a Brazilian football team. It's devastated people around the world, especially here in Brazil, but also in Colombia. This week has been very sad and difficult. Talking with friends about how sports, especially football, can raise such good feelings in all of us um, and uh, we can we can use our solidarity to bring some peace to people who are suffering such pain. I know it's a very complicated topic, but I also know that you're a very sensitive person and like to contextualise football and cultural aspects in our modern society. That's my suggestion. Keep doing this great work. Hugs from Brazil. Okay, Roberto, so... Um, I was aware of this story. I I saw a notification about it on my phone. I was aware of it, and I know it's a a terrible tragedy for sure. Um, So apparently, uh, Chapacoense were having a great football season. So ladies and gents, are you aware of this story? I'm talking about the fact that there was a a plane crash in Colombia on Monday, uh, the 28th of November, And um, in that plane crash, um, a number of people died, including players and staff working at a Brazilian football team. So uh, this football team, many of the players were killed in the in the crash. And it's really awful. Um, And it's it's really sort of sad. And I'm sure it's affected many people. Um, Apparently, uh, Chapecoense were having a really great season in the Brazilian leagues uh, this year. And in fact, for the last couple of years, they've been playing really well and they were like a really great sort of success story because they they used to be a low league team, I understand. And over the last few years, they got promoted all the way up to the top Brazilian league just a couple of years ago. And they were apparently were really on the up. Uh, and then apparently when the accident happened, um, they were on their way to play in the South American Cup final against Atletico Nacional. Uh, so it was a really big game, a big opportunity. And that's when the, the plane tragically crashed. Um, and reports seem to show that the plane ran out of fuel or had electrical problems and then finally crashed near uh, Medellin in uh, Colombia. Almost everyone on board was killed except for a few survivors. And at this stage, we're still not really sure why the plane had problems and why it crashed. But one thing's for sure, this is an awful tragedy. And I'm sure that it has hit people pretty hard because in a way, these players, um, these players would have been real heroes uh, for many people, you know, real role models for a lot of people, especially young football fans who look up to football players so much. And uh, football is a sport which does unite people and it gives them a passion. It gives them something to believe in. You know, even people, you know, people living in very difficult circumstances, football can become something that sort of lifts them up, you know, and it can give young people a sense that they have opportunities for the future and that they can better themselves and they can better their situations and they look up to these footballers. The importance of a sport like football can't really be understated and it, it can be a great source of joy and strength for the fans and also for the players. Uh, it's a platform for them to achieve truly great things, um, even if they come from sort of disadvantaged backgrounds. 
Um, now, this team will have been really important to a lot of people. Uh, also, they they had done so well to get promoted year after year, beating bigger and bigger teams. It's an underdog story, and that makes it kind of even more tragic. Obviously, it's tragic whenever anything like this happens. But you know, the more you learn about the the, the players and stuff, you, you know, the more you understand why so many people are are, are upset about it. Um, for a whole team to be lost in one event is just terrible. Um, and uh, I've got listeners in Brazil and in Colombia. So I just want to say on behalf of Luke's English Podcast, if you are feeling upset by this event, wherever you are, then our thoughts are with you. Um, uh, and it makes me think of Manchester United, actually, because a similar thing happened to Manchester United Football Club um, years ago in 1958, uh, when a plane carrying the Manchester United team crashed during a takeoff in Germany and 23 people were killed in the accident, many of them young members of the team. And it's sort of similar in that at the time, Manchester United were a young team full of promise. Uh, to the people of Manchester, they represented hope and opportunity for the future. And it was just an amazing team and they could have achieved so much. Um, now, I don't know if it's any consolation, but Manchester United obviously since became one of the most driven and successful teams in English football, going on to dominate uh, the Football League years later. Um, anyway, I just wanted to mention that because I got the message from Roberto today and I just felt like mentioning it. So I just wanted to say, Roberto, best wishes to you and also to everyone uh, listening to this who is aware of this story and you know has been sort of moved by it at all. Um, and obviously I was very sorry to read, read about what happened. I'm sure everyone else was too. Um, sad, sad story. Okay. Right. So we're just about done here. I've just got a couple of other things to mention. I've got a few other little bits and pieces to, to just deal with here. I want to say hello to Slava from Ukraine. Hello. Hello, Slava. He, he asked me to say that ages ago and I'm finally getting around to doing it. I hope you're still out there. Uh, I wonder if Slava is still listening to this after all of that stuff about grammar and then media bias. I wonder. Anyway, hello to you. And in fact, hello to everyone. Hello. Hello to everyone else who's listening to this and also to everyone else who sent me a message recently. Um, one question I get sometimes um, is uh, this one. And it, people sometimes say, why don't you post uh, to VK more often? So VK is a social network. It's a bit like Facebook. And I think it's very popular in places like Russia and surrounding areas. Um, and so people sometimes say, why don't you post uh, onto VK? Now, I do have a, a VK page for Luke's English Podcast. But yeah, it's true. I hardly ever update it. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One of them is that I've forgotten my password. And I, you know, I always go onto VK and I type out and I try and enter my password and I get it wrong again and again and again. So I need to do the password reset and all that stuff. So that anyway, that's one of the reasons. Another reason is that sometimes I use Hootsuite, which is like a, a web uh, web service that allows me to post to social media automatically. And Hootsuite doesn't allow me to post to VK automatically. It doesn't give me the VK option. So that's another reason why. And also, I'm just not on VK generally. I mean, like all my friends in the UK and France and stuff like that, all my friends are on Facebook. So I naturally go there quite a lot. Uh, but you're right, I should post to VK because I know it's it's, it's a super popular uh, social network and I'm sure that lots of my listeners are there. 
Um, now, if you are a user of VK, there are several Luke's English Podcast pages on that network. Um, and if you just search for Luke's English Podcast, you'll you'll find them. I think one of them is called British English Luke's Podcast. The other one is just called Luke's English Podcast. So, you know, feel free to join the group and also feel free to update it for other members of the VK community. You could, you know, add posts in there and stuff like that. Do spread the word about Luke's English Podcast. Uh, if you're enjoying the podcast, then let people know uh, because word of mouth is always the best form of marketing. If you like the podcast, share it with your friends. Don't forget to join the mailing list. Uh, don't forget to join the mailing list where you can get uh, the uh, link to every page for every new episode uh, sent directly to your inbox when it's published. Um, and that's the most convenient way to get access to things like the, all the notes and transcriptions and the comments section and other stuff. Um, take part in the transcript collaboration. There's an email list for that. Um, and if you want to get involved, go to the transcript collaboration page on my website. So go to the website, hover the mouse over transcripts, and then click transcript collaboration. Go to there. All the details are there, including the email address for Antonio, who's sort of uh, managing the project at the moment. You could send an email to Antonio and just tell him, like, I'd like to take part in the transcript collaboration. And then he will send you an email with the details. Um, you can start by just transcribing three minutes of an episode. Uh, you don't have to do the whole thing. Just do three minutes. And then you can do more as you get better and better. Uh, don't forget to read the rules of the project. There are rules for doing the transcriptions. So please do read those rules. You'll find them on the page on the on the website. So there you go. That's all I have to say to you in this episode of the podcast. Uh, are you okay? I, I, did you manage to, manage to survive? For some reason, I'm imagining after having talked to you about grammar and all that stuff about media bias that... There might be like just, I'm imagining sort of just loads of skeletons around the world with headphones on, uh, like that. Or maybe not, I don't know. Let me know, let me know. Uh, I've enjoyed doing this episode and thank you for your questions and comments. Speak to you again soon, but for now it's time to say goodbye. Bye, bye, bye. Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk.